If you weren't here for the first hour, then you may not know why the room is configured as it is. It's because of what's behind me and this stage that's been constructed uh, for the Living Last Supper presentation. We had one last night at 6, and then uh, tonight at 6 again we will have that. So if you're able to come, it was a marvelous, marvelous presentation, just uh, absolutely uh, wonderful. So if you can come, I would encourage you to do that 6 o'clock tonight, but that's why things are arranged the way they are. Next week when you come in, we will have our normal configuration with the seats facing facing that way in kind of a semicircle fashion. We're in a series called the, the Story of Your Life, The Story of Your Life, and I'll explain why we call it that in, in just a bit. But change is supposed to be a constant in the Christian life. Change in my life, change in your life should be happening regularly because we were made to reflect the image of God. And sin is a distortion of the image of God. Sin causes the mirrors that we were made to be to be cracked and thus distort God's image. It's still there. It can still be made out. It can still be made out in people who are non-Christian people. But it's in every person still not completely clear. And the end of history will find those who are Christian being completely transformed into the image of Christ. And that's how it ends. It says when uh, we uh, see him, uh, we will be like him. And so at the end, in the eschaton, at the end of time, then those of us who have a relationship with Christ will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. But in the meantime, that change happens incrementally. But it should be, and most definitely, should be happening. And yet, though change is to be a constant in the Christian life, I lament that in my years of ministry, I see so little of it in so few people. And I've wondered about why that is. Why is it that so few of us are actively engaged in changing, such that we could definitively say that I am different today than I was last year, and that those who know me best could say that? Why is it that it doesn't happen more often? few reasons. One is we don't think it's necessary. <clears throat> and one reason we don't think it's necessary is because we have become convinced that the only thing that really matters is whether or not I'm going to heaven, whether or not I have punched my ticket to heaven. And if there was a point in time in the past where I prayed for Jesus to be my Savior, I've got my ticket. So what happens in the meantime is, you know, try to enjoy the ride as much as you can. Try to avoid as many conflicts and trials as you can. Try to arrange your life so it will be as comfortable as possible until I'm taken to heaven and I give my ticket. And I'm convinced that that's the view of many, many people. So many don't change, therefore, because they don't think it's necessary. What really matters has already been taken care of. Or people don't change because they don't think it's possible. I mean, you see little of it. And so you don't expect it to happen. Doesn't happen with anybody else. So why should I expect it to happen with me? So change must not be possible because nobody does it. Nobody in my family ever did it. My parents never changed. Are you kidding? They were the same grouchy people. They hated each other their entire marriage. I mean, in public they were very polite. You'd never know it. 
but they did, and they never changed out of that. And by the way, that, that was not the case with my parents. I'm just I'm quoting other people, right? That's what, that's what teachers do. I have lots of friends who do all the things I want to preach about, okay? So it's not necessary, or it's not possible, we think, because we've seen so little of it. It's not emphasized. It's not emphasized in our churches. <clears throat> so, because it's not emphasized, then I just am who I am. And if we're married, I am who you married. Deal with it. And that lack of emphasis on this need for change means that so few of us then are challenged to do something that's absolutely requisite if change is to happen. And that is we make a thorough examination of indeed who we are. So because people don't think it's necessary and they don't think it's possible and it's not emphasized, then very few people engage in the examination of themselves that is necessary in order for me to know where I am and what needs to change. I've got to have comparisons, contrasts between where I am and what the Bible says Jesus is and I'm to become. And if I don't do that, that gap will never shrink. And so very few people engage in examination. So that's what this series is about. It's called the story of your life, the story of my life, because we all have to do that examination. I have to know the story of my life that has made me what I am, good and bad and ugly. And so I've been emphasizing over these last few weeks, and this series will end next week. We have Easter the following week. We won't have this class, uh, just worship service at 11 o'clock for Easter, two weeks from today. And then we'll start a new series in this hour called Why You Can Trust the Bible for Seven Weeks. And in our worship hour that day, April the 12th, uh, we will start a series in the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 through 12. But in these few weeks together in the story of your life, I've been talking about what it is that makes each of us who we are. And I remind you of those components. I am a composite of nature and nurture. You are a composite of what you are by nature and what you have become by nurture. By nature, you and I, according to the Bible, according to biblical anthropology, that is a biblical view of humanity, a biblical view of people, a biblical view of that says that by nature, you and I are some wonderful things. We are made in the image of God. We were made to reflect God back to God. And God gave us, naturally, as humans, the capacity to do that. And, yet, and, and the Bible also says that we are, Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. So we, in our nature, are some wonderful things. And some of those things we have in common, all made in the image of God, every last human being. But then some of those things are different. God has designed us differently. And so there's not a uniformity in personality. There's not a uniformity in abilities and gifts. God has distributed those to us all differently. Personalities are different. That's all part of what I am and what you are by nature. Made in the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. With gifts and abilities and a personality that is unique to you. Ephesians 2.10. God's workmanship. God's poema. Craftsmanship even work of art, beautiful thing. I'm that by nature, you're that by nature. But unfortunately, by nature, I am also sinful. 
and the entrance of sin into God's world by our first parents and then passed on to everyone since at conception, at conception, you come into the world with a sin nature. So now to say, well, you know, you just naturally do X. You, you can't do that like hardly with anything. To say that something is just natural because nature's been messed up. My nature's been messed up and yours has been messed up by the entrance of sin. So now all this wonderful stuff we are is now coupled with all this bad stuff that we are. And that's part of the profile of who, who you are. That's your nature. Both of those aspects. All those great things and then sin. And then there is your nurture, my nurture. God has, God has sovereignly placed you and me at a particular place and at a particular time. It is not an accident that you were born into the family that you were born into. God had a purpose in all of that. There is no person who was born at the wrong time. According to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, the Bible says that God has determined the times appointed for every person, and I'm quoting, and the exact places where they should live. So I was born in 1962, do the math, in Dot Hospital to... Azzy and Adi Brown. Azzy, A-Z-Z-I-E, Adi, O-T-T-I-E. Some of you heard me say that with names like that, they didn't have to date, they didn't have to be engaged, they just exchanged names and knew it was meant to be. <laughs> and I was born to those parents in the Wyandotte, in the Wyandotte Hospital. And, and all of that was by God's design. And that's true then for you as well. And so in that family, I learned certain kinds of behaviors and certain kinds of reactions to situations that occur. It's all part of my nurture now. These are the primary people around me. And those people around me affected me for good. And those people, because they are sinful like I am, they also affect you for ill. And it's not just then your family. That's the primary shape, uh, the primary um, uh, f formation of your character from a nurture standpoint. But then, of course, there's your friends at school. There's the media. There's the culture. That's all part of nurture. It's all the persons around you that influence you. But all of those people are sinful as well. So all have everything I've talked about. The nature, the nurture, Every of us, all of us have it, but few of us examine it. And part of the reason that few of us examine it is because it's not emphasized and the reasons I gave earlier. But then if you happen to wander into a place, and I say happened because I don't believe in accidents, so by God's sovereign appointment, if you wander into Community Bible Church and you hear a guy saying, you should really examine yourself and so should I, and now it's being emphasized in ways that you've never heard before. How many, I'm not looking for a show of hands, but how many people just say, thank you, Lord. I'm so glad I'm finally having emphasized the fact that I need to look in the mirror and see what a hot mess I've become. 
Probably not many. Now why? Because I've tried to emphasize throughout this series that the reason that we do this exercise of examination is ultimately for the best end for us to change into the image of Jesus. And I'm convinced that there's no way for us to change into the image of Jesus unless we know where we are deficient in that. And so this examination must happen. And so it should be a good thing for us. But if we're honest, for most of us it's not. And here's why. Because it's painful. And part of the reason it's painful is because we're prideful. It takes a lot of humility to be shown who you are and what you become. And the longer you go without the requisite humility, the Christian humility, to say, Lord, show me my heart, show me what I'm like, and utilize other people that you bring into my life to show me that. The longer you go without doing that, and I'll use marriage the longer you go in a marriage without doing that, oh man, it becomes just crusted over, hardened. This is why you have the scene repeated over and over again. Where you can go out to a restaurant and you see an older couple that have likely been together for decades. And they're not talking to each other at all, not a syllable, throughout the entire meal. Meal. I'm amazed at how many times I see that, but then when I think about what I'm saying here, I'm not so amazed, because that's how it happens. So, I'm hoping that for these past few weeks, you've been mentally and spiritually engaged. And that at least some of you have said, as painful as it is, God is doing a work in my heart so that I'm willing to endure that pain, that God is granting me the humility to look at myself and to even utilize other people that you've, God has brought into my life, life to help me see what, I, see what I am. And so, today and next week, we'll conclude our series, The Story of Your Life. And I want to remind you how it is that I defined sin a few weeks ago, in light of everything that I've just said. Sin could be defined this way. It's mute, misusing the power... You could say the ability, the power slash ability that God has given me to get what I want. Sin is misusing the power slash ability that God has given me to get what I want. Now that's actively sinning. Sin is misusing, but it's using it, but misusing. That's actively sinning. And then many people are in the situation where they are passively sinning. That is, they're refusing to use the power and ability that God has given for his ends. And the reason they're refusing to use it is because they're ticked that they hadn't gotten what they want. So they tried to misuse their power and ability and it didn't work. And so now you have people who are living their lives in protest, in protest to God, ultimately, for what they didn't get. Now, with that view of biblical anthropology, I am by nature, who I am by nature and by nurture, and the, that, that I then by sin 
tend to misappropriate and misuse what God has given for my own ends. Let's take that a little bit further. By nature and by nurture, you will use your abilities and your gifts differently than I will to get what you want. You're a unique human being made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, and you're also a uniquely designed sinner. You sin in your own unique ways. Because you've got different abilities than I have. And you're in different circumstances than I am. So it manifests itself differently. So I gave the example of even men and women. Gender. Tending, this generality, but tending to sin differently. And men will sin by trying to exert their power. Physical power or being overbearing perhaps uh, verbally. Women will often use guile and manipulation. Because that's the power that they have available. Whatever power, whatever ability you have available to you, that's what sinners will use in order to get what they want. And that can have a gender component. It has a nature component. If by nature you're talkative, then you'll use your mouth to get what you want. If by nature you're, you're smart, or somebody told you you're smart and you believed it, but either way, you'll use your intellect to try to get what you want. If you have the gift of being organized, then you'll organize things in a way to get what you want. I mean, you just go down the list of all the features that someone could be gifted with. And then with your nurture, you've learned, we've learned to sin in unique ways, in our own distinct ways. So in your family, how did you handle conflict? You might have grown up in a family where the way we handle conflict is to act like there is no conflict. Sweep it under the rug. Don't talk about it. You may have grown up in a family where your way of handling conflict is to yell. And you find yourself yelling because you learned it. Or to lie. You get in a tight situation, you saw modeled, you heard your parents on the phone lying to people on the phone, you heard them in their conversations lying, you learned to lie. Or you learned to handle life by worry, fret. Again, a long and, and almost endless list. So, if you're going to do this, if you're going to change, you've got to examine. But very few of us examine. Now, I'm going to ask a question again. I don't want hands. But I wonder how many people did what I suggested last week, which was ask someone who knows you about you. Ask someone who knows you what they see in you. Have the humility to open yourself up to someone who knows you and I said, someone who cares about you, someone who has your best interest at heart, not someone who's just going to, oh, I've been waiting for this all my life to lay into you. Not that person. Okay? But I, I wonder how many people did that. And if you didn't do it, I'm going to repeat it at the end of today. Dear friend, dear friend, you need to do that. If you say, I don't have anybody who knows me, 
I don't have anybody who knows me. Then, in all likelihood, you've been living life in protest because you haven't gotten what you wanted. And you've withdrawn yourself. You've been protesting. And that is a, that is a revelation of you to you. And one of the things you need to remedy than where you are. So we're blinded by our own pride. And therefore, I recommended you need somebody else. Somebody who can look at you objectively. Because you don't look at you objectively. I don't look at myself objectively. And as I said last week, I mean, the best many of us can muster sometimes in critically evaluating ourselves is to say, you know, I'm not perfect. So... Uh, David Woolley. Where is David? He's here. I saw him, man. There he is. Raise his hand. All right. He's back there. So I said that last week toward the end. Now I'm out in the hallway. David comes. Hey, David, how you doing? He goes, I'm not perfect. (laughs) Okay. It's a wise guy in every crowd. Okay. And so I'd encouraged you to ask, what do you see in me? Have you seen me grow? How do I use my abilities for my own ends? Those are the kinds of questions you want to get answers to. And you, if you are willing and you've been in relationship, if you've been in relationship, if you haven't been in passive protest mode and withdrawn yourself, but if you've been in relationship, then people have observed these things from in you. Because relationships were given to us by God for growth and godliness. But I see value, you see value as a self-centered sinner in those relationships to the extent that those relationships help me get what I want. And so in your relationships, over years, you've been manifesting your reaction to not getting what you want, or trying to manipulate the relationship in order to get what you want in some way, shape, or form. And you need to ask someone how you've been doing that over the years because you don't see it clearly because we don't see ourselves clearly due to our spiritual pride. Now, I've asked you to turn to James 4. I've asked you to turn to James 4 because James 4 is perhaps the classic passage that lays out the fact that at the root of our relationships is what we want and us trying to get what we want. So it begins in verse 1 by asking the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So it's a relational context, clearly, right? I mean, you don't fight with yourself. If you do, don't tell me. But... You're fighting and you're quarreling. Presumably there's at least two people involved here. So it's a relational context. What causes those fights and quarrels among you in your relationships? And then there is this rhetorical question asked. The end of verse 1. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the first phrase is talking about what happens outward. They're the fights and they're the quarrels. That's what you see. That's what's displayed. That's what erupts. That word erupt is a a good one for this because in order for it to erupt, there has to be something at bottom that's, that's heating up. 
and it erupts into a fight and a quarrel, the second phrase tells us why. Because that volcano occurs, or different kinds of volcanoes here. You got the people who blow up and the people who clam up, okay? But either way, they both occur because there's something at root, and the something at root is something inside that you don't see. And the thing you don't see is the desires that battle within you. Now it's important to note that at the end of verse 1, it does not say, don't they come from the evil desires that battle within you. They simply come from the desires that battle within you. And when we read that, desires, we think immediately, in fact, if you've got a King James Version, I think it says lusts there. Don't they come from the lusts that war within you? And so you read lust and immediately you think negative. But lust is simply an English word translating the Greek word for an intense want, an intense desire. And that intense desire may actually be for something good. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, 1. If anyone desires the office of a pastor, a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. It's a word for intense desire, but it's, it's a desire for something good. So James is not saying that these desires are necessarily for evil things or that they're even evil desires. So you, many of you have heard me say over the years that the desires that cause our relational difficulties are very often desires for good things. So as an example, I want, as a parent, I want my children to be well-behaved. I want my children to follow instruction. I want them to obey. That's a good thing. The Bible is replete with commands to that, that effect. So I want a good thing. And yet I can want that good thing so much that I'm willing to sin to get it. You can want something good so much you're willing to sin to get it. Or you're willing to sin in the absence of receiving it. So if my kid doesn't obey me, then I might get upset because I desire this so much. And then in anger, I might discipline him or her. So I have sinned in response to what started as a good desire for my kids to obey me. Or... If you're married and a wife has a husband who is not a spiritual leader in the home, she wants that. She desires that. Is that a good thing? Of course. But she can want that thing so much that she's willing to sin to get it or sin in the absence of receiving it. I have met many a woman over the years, married woman, Christian woman who desires a husband who leads spiritually, and he's not. And because he's not, she's violating God's word in a number of ways in order to achieve it. A number of ways. One, she tells everybody he's not. 
So everybody knows stuff about Joe. We, sorry, Joe, we've got at least one Joe in here. Not that Joe. But she's, she's unburdened herself to a bunch of people about him. And in so doing, has violated God's word. She has refused to live with joy in the midst of a difficult circumstance. And God calls us to joy, even in the midst of difficulty. And of course, it goes the other way as well. A husband who wants certain things out of a wife. And those things may be good things, but in the absence of receiving them, then he reacts sinfully. Now that list of desires, these things we want that don't happen could go on. But you get the idea, I hope. Now, I want to give you a couple of structures that I've used over the years that have been helpful to me. Some of you have heard these, uh, but let me give them to you again as it relates to these, these desires. One is this, that we need to understand that the gap between our expectations slash desires and reality, that gap is often what causes us our difficulty. There's what I expected to happen, there's what I wanted to happen, and then there's what really happened in my life. I am convinced that midlife, so-called midlife crisis fits into exactly what I just said. Expectations minus reality equals midlife crisis. Because when I graduated from high school and then I graduated from college, I was going to take the world on, and by the time I was 35, these are the things that were going to happen and, and fall into place. And it didn't happen. She got sick. Our child got sick. My job, I had job difficulties. The economy crashed. I mean, you just, all kinds of things outside of my control happened. And I had all these expectations and these desires, and they were all for good things. And they didn't happen. And now I'm in midlife, and I am living midlife in the regret that I did not achieve the expectations that I had set. Just as a quick aside, I believe that insight, what I just said, could be of tremendous value to our young people who are upperclassmen in high school, graduating and going into college, to teach them at that age to not set their expectations for 35 or 40. Set goals, but don't set expectations because you don't control what happens. A sovereign God controls what happens. And you set those goals and you hold them with a loose hand. But if you tighten that fist on that person or those things, that person or those things becomes a desire to you that has morphed into an idol. I wanted that thing so bad and it didn't happen and it has messed up my life. That's what we think. So expectations minus reality is where many people are living their lives. And here's the other thing about these desires. Remember, verse 1 says you've got the fights and the quarrels that come out. That's the stuff you see, but the desires are inside of you. Those are the things you don't see. Those are the things that require the 
MRI, the x-ray of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to show you, and people who care about you. But those are things that are going on churning inside of you that you may not even know are there until they erupt. And, and certainly the people with whom you're in relationship may not know they're there. They find out when you get ticked. So here's how it, here's how it goes. The anatomy of an idol goes like this. I want. Starts there. I want. It always starts there. I want something. I want someone. That something or someone may be good, as I've said, but I want. It starts there. And then it move, more goes to uh, I, uh, I need. It's not, just I, it's not just I want this. I need this. Haven't you ever taken a psychology class and, and know that Maslow said there are certain needs you just got to have, okay? Well, Maslow missed this one, all right? And this is another one of the hierarchy of needs that you've got to have in order for you to achieve self-actualization. I just feel better saying that. So it goes from I want to, to I need. And then it moves from I need to I must. I've got to have this. My energies, my mental energies, are focused on achieving whatever it or they are. Well, all of those, all the three that I've just given you, I want, I need, I must. Notice the pronoun I. This is all going on within you. Maybe not even known to you fully because you've never examined it. But then the pronoun changes in relationship. You should. You see, because I want and I need and I must and we're stuck together. So therefore, you should. Now the change from what I'm doing internally to what you need to do often happens invisibly. And very often it happens invisibly to the other person because you haven't articulated it to them. And maybe because you haven't examined it yourself and therefore articulated it to yourself. But I just know that there's stuff you're supposed to be doing you're not doing and I ain't happy. You should. And then that goes to you didn't. Because, you know, the person that you're counting on to be your mini, M-I-N-I, Messiah, the person that you're counting on to be your knight in shining armor, if it's a male, or your princess that's going to deliver you, that person doesn't deliver. And let me, let me just add, thanks be to God that person doesn't deliver. Because you know what's supposed to happen when that person doesn't deliver? You're supposed to be turned to the real Messiah. You shouldn't have been looking to him or her anyway. But you should. And you didn't. And so then the final step in that anatomy of an idol is you'll pay. You'll pay. And you have people then warring with one another in their relationships who are in payback mode. Because the expectations that I have were not realized in this relationship you should have. You didn't come through. You're paying. I don't like you. But we're stuck together. Many of those old couples in that restaurant, 
that don't talk to each other, they've been doing payback mode for decades. So James 4 says what causes these fights? It's something that's going on within you, and that something is these desires, and those desires are not necessarily, they may be for evil things, but they may be for good things. So here's what an idolatrous desire is. An idolatrous desire is often found in wanting good things too much. An idolatrous desire is often found in wanting good stuff, good things, too much. Now, how serious is it? I'm calling it idolatry. Maybe I'm taking it a bit too far. Notice verse 4 of James 4. You adulterous people. Okay, maybe I'm not taking it too far. James says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? And then verse 5 says, do you not know that the spirit that he caused to live in you envies intensely? You guys see that? Envies. Now that word envy is related to the desire back up in verse 1. Because that's what envy, that's what jealousy is. I want something. The, Holy, the Spirit wants something. The Spirit wants your heart. The Spirit desires your heart. But your heart's been captured by other things. As evidenced by your reaction to not getting them. And so the Spirit has, as it were, a dog in this fight. The Spirit cares about this internal battle that's going warring within you. And in fact, he's part of the battle. What's the remedy? Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Verse 6, he gives grace to the humble. Which brings me back to where I was a little while ago. You're only going to do this examination if you're willing to humble yourself for the sake of Christ. If you're willing to look in the mirror and see who you are, if you're willing to have other people put the spotlight of truth on your heart and show who you are and what you become. So, for this coming week, in anticipation of our last week of the story of your life, I asked you last week to get with someone and, who loves you and cares about you spiritually and ask them to examine you. And ask the kinds of questions that I asked last week, and I repeated some of those today. If you weren't here last week, you can listen to all of our recordings every week on our website. But for this week, I want to encourage you to answer these questions. What goes on when I sin? Now, let me just stop. What goes on when I sin? Now, you may be sitting there going, man, I'm scratching my head. When do I sin? See, that's why you need somebody else. <laughs> okay? That's why you really got to do the first thing. You got to do the first thing to have some people who will point out to you how you do this. And then having done that, you want to ask this question. What's going on when I do that? 
That is, what are the circumstances? What's happening when I do that? When I manifest that attitude, when I say those words, when I do those things that have been pointed out to me and that I now realize have captured me. What's going on? And then, with that, after that, ask the question, what do I do in response to what's going on? So there's what's going on, and then there's what I do. So, you know, I blow up when I come home from work because I want peace and quiet, and I want some food, and I'm a hangry. I learned the word hangry. <laughs> Hanger. So I'm a hangry man. And so I, and I come home and all I want is some food and some peace and quiet and the toys are everywhere and the kids are going crazy and there ain't no food. So that's one of the things that's happening. And so what do you do? Answer the question, what do you do in response to what's happening? And then third, we've got four of these. What do you think about what's happening? Because what you do... But what do you think about what's happening? I mean, well, well, what do I think? It shouldn't be this way. And one of us is not doing our job. And it ain't me. Okay, I mean, just what do you think about it? And then lastly, what do you want? What do you want instead of what's happening? What do you want to be happening? By the time you get down to what you want to be happening, you've gotten down to your idolatrous desire that causes you to sin. Now it may be in relationship that a spouse, a child, church member, co-worker, it may be that there are things that they ought to do and should change and that you need to talk to them about and find out if we can get that together. But it also may be friends that a sovereign and good and gracious God has called you to live in the midst of an undesirable situation. And I said what, last week, last Sunday, in the Philemon message, the first hour, I said that you know we say we don't believe in the health and wealth prosperity gospel, but the idea that God would want me in an undesirable situation, that can't be true. Well, if it can't be true, then you're a prosperity gospel type. Because the fact of the matter is, biblically and experientially, it is true. That God, but a good and gracious God, sometimes places us in undesirable situations in order to achieve his good ends. So you want to get to the bottom of what do I want? And then we will, you know where we're going. We're going to ask the question, okay, how much do I want what I want? And what do I need to do differently? What do I need to think differently in order for me to not respond in the ways I do? All right, please do those things this week. If you didn't this past week, ask someone about you. Do that. Having done that, then ask yourself those four questions. All right? Let's pray. Ask the Lord to be with us this week. Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity again to open your word, to consider what you have called us to do and to be. 
And Lord, we can't be or do any of it without your aid. And so we acknowledge our complete dependence upon you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us this week and, and, and guide us in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to, to help us develop the humility and, and defeat the pride that lurks within all of us. We need your Holy Spirit to move in the hearts of those that, with whom you have placed us in relationship, to cause them to love us, to want the best for us, and therefore be willing to tell the truth to us. So Lord, we ask for your aid in these and in every other aspect of our lives this week because we are totally dependent upon you and without you we can do nothing. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety this week. And we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day as we conclude trying to change into the image of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.